So we are continuing in this series called Deeper, Higher, and Wider. And um, as we have looked over the last several weeks, we've been diving deeper into some of the stories of the Old Testament. And when we come back from our hiatus, we'll look at some of the stories in the New Testament before we move to the next section, which is wider, which is tackling some of the questions that we often have inside of us. So today I want to talk about the resistance of Daniel. Uh, the resistance of Daniel is coming from this narrative about a young man who was taken from his homeland. Now the book of Daniel is one of the most mysterious and mostly under, misunderstood books of the Bible. You might know the basic stories, Daniel in the lion's den and his friends in the fiery furnace. But you might also know that there have been a lot of books that have been written on the uh, book of Daniel that talk about end time prophecy. So the first half of the book is all these stories, but chapter 7 through 12 has some mysterious symbolism. And this symbolism, a lot of times, has sold a lot of books. So if you're familiar with this trend in Christianity, there's always been a desire to kind of know what's coming next, trying to predict the future. Well, there's two books that are primarily used to try to do that. One is the book of Daniel, and the other is the book of Revelation. And as you look at some of the strange creatures and images that are found in the second half of Daniel, I think it misses the main point. And I think the point of this book is primarily about resisting empire, resisting the pressure of living in a foreign land under a foreign power. So there's more than one way to tell a story. So what happens is the first half of the book of Daniel is written uh, in narrative form, telling a story. The second half is written in apocalyptic form, which is a big word that means kind of unveiling something that we don't know or showing us something that is uh, important to us. Well, when you read the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, it's different than the book of Daniel in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And I mentioned before there are some additional sections in this Greek translation, and I showed you one of the prayers that comes out of it. But that's not the end. There's a number of books that are found in a Catholic Bible that's called the Apocryphal Books. And ironically enough, these extra books that are in a Catholic Bible Two of them talk about the book of Daniel. One of them is called uh, uh, the Prayer of Azariah, and the other one is called the Song of the Three Holy Children. So if you're interested in that, if you have a Bible that has an apocrypha, it kind of supplements the story a little bit. There's something else that's interesting in the book. Chapter 1 is written in Hebrew, and chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic which is kind of akin to Hebrew, but it's not Hebrew. And then it comes back to Hebrew in chapters 8 through 12. So why is this the case? Well, I want to tell you that it seems as though what's happening here is a retrospective. 
that a writer much later is looking back in time upon what happened to Daniel and his three friends. So the book of Daniel is a book that is telling us about a very powerful empire called Babylon and the fall of that empire to the Medo-Persian Empire. Now that all seems irrelevant to us, but it will be relevant to us in a couple moments when I show you what is next to come. So here we have the book of Daniel, this mysterious book that has two types of context to it. One is a narrative context. It tells us the story. And the other is a compositional context. What did the writer really want us to know? So let's take it in that order. First the narrative context and then the compositional context. So when you open the book of Daniel, you're going to find different stories. And these different stories are set in a time when the Jewish people were taken out of their land. Babylon invaded their land took people back to their homeland and destroyed the temple and left people in poverty that stayed behind. Okay, you got the picture there? So in chapter 1 that I read, there were some people that were taken from their homeland, Jerusalem and the surrounding area, back 900 miles. That's a long way, right? All the way back to Babylon. So that's the area in our own day and age which is Iran and Iraq, okay? So that gives you a little bit of geography there in terms of uh, being oriented to what part of the world we're talking about. So they bring these young men back. And what we first see is there is a test that is given them. And the first test they experience is what I want to call the diet test. This dietary test is where these young men refuse to eat all the best food of the king, refuse to drink their wine, but want to stay kosher. Okay, are you familiar with that term? So Jewish people uh, deem certain foods kosher. If you go to the grocery store, there's a symbol on some foods that is a kosher food that is permitted culturally for Jewish people. Well, when... Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, brings these young men into his court. He kind of spreads the tentacles of empire into their hearts because here's what he wants to do. He wants to indoctrinate them. Why would he want to do that? Well, number one, they're young and impressionable. Number two, they're vibrant. Number three, they're talented. And if he can indoctrinate these young men to the ways of the Babylonian, then what he can do is send these young men back into other territories of Babylon and rule, allow them to rule over those territories. So he has a political motive in mind. Incidentally, if you want to see how these young men were taken, you can read that story in 2 Kings chapter 25. Now, it matters that these are young people. The story of Daniel tells us about young men who are being groomed to love the empire of Babylon more than they love themselves. However, empires often underestimate young people, whether it's the civil rights movement or high school gun reform activists or any other thing that 
young people feel are important to a good life. Climate change might be another example. What we find is they have the ability to persevere. When our lesson begins, these young people are not going to pray to the gods of the empire. They understand that empire is insatiable. Once empire has your soul, they want more and more and more. And so they stand up and they say, we're not going to eat the king's food. So this initial indoctrination of a dietary change, they refuse. And these young men understand something. As long as there is a corner of your soul that is free, uncolonized, unbought, and unbossed, then empire cannot uproot the liberty that you have inside of you. But it's a risky resistance. When they say no to the god of empire, no to its worship and its veneration, then there could be potential consequences. You know, sometimes though, those risky acts of resistance are necessary. And sometimes we need to say no to the manifestations of empire in our own world. No to the slaughter of school children. No to military grade weaponry on the streets. No to families that are ripped apart by militarized immigration policies. No to death dealing theology. No to violence against women. No to bullying gay and trans people to death. No to incompetent and corrupt government. No to everything that stands against the life-giving love of God and the liberty that he wants to give to us because we are made in his image. Does that make sense? Okay. So you have this first test and they pass. This test is they're going to eat only vegetables and they look spry and healthy. And so King Nebuchadnezzar and his court say, okay, I acquiesce. So they win first test. A second test comes along in chapter 2. This test is Nebuchadnezzar, who is so full of himself, so arrogant, so self-absorbed, um, is troubled about some dreams that he is having. And so he wants all of his court servants to tell him what these dreams that he's having mean. Well, you can see here that if the dietary test is to indoctrinate them, the dream test here is a test of, can you interpret my dreams? Well, then Nebuchadnezzar says, not only do I want you to interpret the dreams, you actually have to tell me what I dreamt. That's a big difference, isn't it? Okay, so the magicians and the court officials, they say, well, just tell us the dream, Nebuchadnezzar, and we'll give interpretation as to what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar says, you're just trying to buy time. You're just trying to squirm out of this. And I'm paying you a lot of money to be my court officials, and I want to see whether you are worth it. And if you don't tell me what I dreamt, well, I'm going to execute you. Wow. 
Can you imagine that pressure? So here is Daniel and his three friends, and what we find is that word gets out that Daniel, this one who has this incredible ability and character, is able to interpret dreams. So Nebuchadnezzar brings Daniel in. And he says, you need to tell me my dream and interpret it. Well, Daniel tells us that it's not him that's able to interpret dreams, but the God he serves who's enabled to uh, interpret that dream. Well, Daniel now pressures on him. Is he going to be cut to pieces like the other magicians? Or will he not only save his own life, but also the lives of the magicians? In chapter 2, this is what he prays. Daniel always had a heart of prayer. He says, Praise to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with Him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And so we'll get into this on our Wednesday study. I'm not going to get into it, but it's a strange dream. It's a dream of a statue with a head of gold and a chest of silver and thighs of bronze and feet of clay. And so what Daniel does to get to the point is he says, here's your dream. You dreamt of a statue that's made of different metals. And each metal represents a different empire. And it says, basically, that there are going to be successive empires that are going to come along. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then finally Rome in, in the historical sequence of things. But this dream test is one that saves Daniel's life and saves the lives of the other court officials as well. So, two tests. He passes them both. He's not intimidated by this threat of Nebuchadnezzar to be cut to pieces because he serves the God of dreams and interpretation. Third, there's a devotion test. And in chapter 3, so Nebuchadnezzar gets a, this brilliant idea because he had this dream of this statue that he'll go ahead and build one. So in chapter 3, he builds this huge statue. And what we find is the text tells us this statue is 90 feet high. 90 feet. 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. So that's a huge statue. So it's sitting out there on the plains of Shinar, Babylon, and it's glistening in the sun because it's made of gold and other materials that would shine. And then Nebuchadnezzar says this, I want to see if you're fully devoted to me or not. So I'm going to have my musicians play music. And any time you hear music played, you are to fall down and you are to worship me through this image. So the musicians begin to play. And of course, most people will 
bow down and give homage to Nebuchadnezzar, the one who thinks he's God on earth. Ah, but not these three young men. These three young men hear the music playing and they refuse. They refuse to bow down. They know something that maybe we still need to know. And that is empires covet a good religion. One that is submissive to the empire's claims. Not these boys though. These boys say this to Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you for not bowing down. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar loses his lunch and he says, heat up that furnace seven times hotter than normal. So the text then tells us, you can read this, these boys are taken and the furnace is so hot that those that threw them into the furnace were burned up. Wow. So here they are, these three boys are in the fiery furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar decides to take a peek. And he doesn't see them burning up. The text tells us here in chapter 3 that when he looks in, he actually sees a fourth person in the furnace. Ah, who's the fourth person? A lot of conjecture on that, right? Is it Jesus? Is it God who makes himself physically known? So Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely astounded. And so he tells them to come out of the furnace. And they do. Now, here's where those apocryphal books are supplemental. The Song of Azariah, the Song of the Three Holy Children, tells us what they sang to God while they were in the midst of the furnace. And it represents for us the fact that sometimes uh, resistance means a willingness to die. That's reflected in what they told Nebuchadnezzar. But they sang to the God that no empire can defeat. That's the idea here. And as they sang to God, they realized that sometimes empire will tell you your cultural and culinary practices are inferior and they will disparage the will of God that you're trying to follow, but not these boys. And as they come out of the furnace, the text tells us their clothing is not singed, they don't even smell like smoke. Amazing. They pass test number three. Now there's a little bit of incidental information about King Nebuchadnezzar, how he goes insane, basically, in chapters four and five. But then there's a fourth test. Now this one involves Daniel. In chapter six, so Daniel... Uh, has risen in the ranks of leadership in Babylon. He's second in power to King 
Belshazzar himself. Now Nebuchadnezzar has died and Belshazzar has taken his place and he has served Belshazzar and then Belshazzar dies. And what we find is that a second kingdom comes along. It's the Medo-Persian kingdom and there's a guy by the name of Darius that is the king over the Medo-Persian empire. And some of the court officials in this new empire go to Darius and say, listen, you're God on earth. Again, notice how this common theme is found. When people accumulate too much power, they think that they are are even above God, right? So they convince Darius to put in, uh, to effect a decree, an irrevocable decree. It's called the Law of the Medes and the Persians. And this decree is basically that everyone should bow down and give homage to Darius. Well, they should not pray to their own God. But Daniel, who has this rhythm, this spiritual practice of three times a day, going to his room, opening up the window, facing Jerusalem, and praying to God. Now the pressure is on Daniel. So this is the pressure of an irrevocable edict. Darius likes Daniel. He's impressed by his service. He's impressed by his skill. But what we find is that Daniel has a choice to make. And this choice is, is he going to continue to pray or is he going to succumb to the pressure and say, I can always pray in my heart to God. He doesn't. He chooses to open the window so everyone can see and he prays to God. So these court officials in the Medo-Persian Empire say, there he is. He's violating the irrevocable decree. He deserves to death. And so they run back to Darius and they say, hey, Daniel is violating this decree. Now Darius is brokenhearted. He doesn't want to punish Daniel. But this is an irrevocable edict. And so they say he's got to be punished. So he's thrown into a lion's den. And it is there, he's left overnight, and Darius returns to the palace, and he can't eat, and he can't sleep, and he's tossing, and he's turning, and he gets up in the morning, and he goes and he looks in the lion's den, and there's Daniel, and his pet, lions. And Darius is overjoyed that he has survived. (laughs) But the ones who told on Daniel, the ones who ratted him out, Darius says, throw them into the lion's den. And if you read chapter 6 closely, it says, the lions were on them and devoured them before they even hit the ground. Remarkable stories, right? Remarkable stories. The dietary test to indoctrinate them, the dream test to intimidate them, The devotion test to impress them. Hey, you should fall down and worship this statue. Aren't you impressed that it's this big? Right? And then now, the decree test. These men try to incriminate Daniel, but Daniel survives. And in each situation, these tests could actually break the will of these young men and destroy their acts of resistance. 
So I've just told you about the narrative context. So why are all these stories being told? There's a compositional context, and I'm not going to take as much time with this. So it is believed that the book of Daniel is written many years later. So you have Babylon, who's conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Medo-Persian Empire is conquered by Greece. Who's the emperor of Greece? Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great conquers all uh, the known world, basically, and he is a ruthless emperor. He goes and he uh, just murders and rapes and conquers. And then he institutes what's known as Hellenization. Hellenization is your culture is no good, your culture is inferior, you need to learn the ways of the Greeks. Isn't that what the Babylonians try to do to Daniel and his three men? His friends, three friends. So here, during the in the throes of this period of time, so this is hundreds of years later, during the times of Hellenization, we find that there's a resistance by the Jewish people. They want to be able to keep their culture and not be assimilated. But there is something that happens. There is a general in the Greek army he is at, uh, Antiochus IV. And he does something that is unimaginable and quite offensive. He takes his army and he goes in to, uh, into Jerusalem. And he sacrifices, so this is after the second temple has been rebuilt. So that's the end of the book of, of the Old Testament, the books of uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Okay, it's not as elaborate as Solomon's temple, but at least it's a temple and it's where people worship. But Antiochus comes in and he brings a pig with him and he slaughters a pig on the altar in the temple. Now a pig is a what? Unclean animal, right? In the eyes of the Jewish people. This sets off a huge revolution. There's a family known as the Maccabeans. Judas Maccabee is leading a revolution to try to overthrow the... Now, the Greeks are powerful. Alexander the Great is powerful. But he throws... They throw a revolution. At least for a while, they secured a little bit of freedom. This is when the book of Daniel is written. And the reason it is written, it is written as an encouragement for those that are trying to resist the Greeks and their desire to uh, conquer and change the Jewish people. And the, what the writer is doing is he's telling the people to look back, right? Look back at all these stories. Look back to the time of Babylon. Look back to Daniel. Look back to his three friends. Continue to resist. Basically, the book of Daniel's not really a prediction about the future as much as a call to faithfulness. Does that make sense? Okay. A call to be strong. A call to be one who is, has some convictions uh, and is willing to stand up for them. So the compositional point of the book is to remain faithful even to the point of suffering. 
and death if necessary. Because God will remember you and God will not abandon you in the end. You know something? I think that's the main point for us as well. You see, resistance is an act of faith. The struggle against the powers that strip people of things like basic civil liberties and freedoms will be fought only with the belief that resistance, however insignificant or even ineffective as it may appear in the moment, yet it is that very act of resistance that inspires another generation of people that are coming up after to continue to fight the good fight on behalf of other people for their freedoms. Does that make sense? Okay, so the book of Daniel is the hope that this transformational energy that comes from our act of faith will continue to speak out to other people who will not abandon the desire to be treated as people who are made in the image of God. That are, these are people that are to be honored. These are people that are to be served. These are people that are part of our community, that is part of our world, that's a part of who we are as humans. That's what the book of Daniel is all about. And it's telling us to continue to resist any form of dehumanization of other people. It might be racism. It might be sexism. It might be all kinds of things. But when we choose to refuse to love all people because all people are made in the image of God, we are working against the will of God. But if we can look to Daniel, if we can look to his three friends, if we can look to the book of Daniel and say, the resistance is worth it. We will continue to fight for the freedom of other people, for uh, their honor, uh, and to love in that capacity. My brothers and sisters, we are individuals that continue to serve God, but you've got to be patient and you've got to be persistent. That's the point, too. None of these come without patience and persistence. So as I close, Daniel 1 through 6 is a collection of stories of marginalized and mistreated people, and they are resisting control and collapse. And the story isn't over yet. Even the greatest of empires are no match for goodness, righteousness, and justice of God. And it might look like we're losing now, but resistance wins in the end. Remember what Dr. Martin Luther King says, the arc of the universe bends towards justice, but we have to keep persevering. Don't give up hope, right? Don't give up hope. Continue. The story isn't over because God is faithful. Stand with me, and we're going to sing as our closing